Gresham College presents Armageddon and the Cyber Ghost by Alexander Carter Silk. I talk about Cyber Ghost. Now, let me, let me tell you what my credentials are. Um, mainly, I act for insurance companies. And like Ben, they tend to come to me and say, uh, Alex, we, need, we think there'd be a good product here selling people insurance for cyber risk. Uh-huh. What do you think that cyber risk is? Well, we thought you'd tell us. <laughs> so let me get this right. You want me to give myself instructions, write the result, and then you're going to sell it. Uh-huh. Okay, so I did it. And it took a lot of thinking about. Um, and I do talk in this context about the cyber ghost, and I'm going to part read some of the stuff I've written. I'm going to part talk about it. Firstly, I don't have any PowerPoint slides. For a lawyer, that's like working without a bill. Okay, so bear with me here if I get lost. Um, I talk about the cyber ghost because a, a ghost is something which instills fear, superstition, a fear of the unknown in people who are sceptical of its existence. The absence of physical evidence makes it difficult to conceptualise the magnitude or severity of the invisible threat. Armageddon represents the end of days the destruction or abandonment of the World Wide Web. Now the question is, is it possible? Is it possible in whole or in part? I go back and I, talk, I, I do want to just recap over some things that have been, probably been touched on and said all, already. The internet carries more value on a daily basis than the entirety of the Industrial Revolution carried in its whole history for 100 years. The number of financial transactions, goods passed, people's interests dealt with communications is greater now than it's ever been in the history of humanity. We shouldn't be talking about, um, the, what we should be talking about is connectivity. The issue is not the internet, it's the connections between it. And I can give you, I'll start off by giving a few odd examples um, and cases, I've, one of case I dealt with which involved a mainframe going down, and I was called at four o'clock in the morning, helicoptered halfway across the country to a smoke-filled room with a, very lo with a lot of very panicked executives, because the, 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 you may remember this, the computer that it took down was the one that makes the BAX payments every week and paid salaries. It was one computer. It took the whole country down. Nobody ever foresaw that there was a single node through which all the digital communications went. The question was why? What was it that was strange about that particular computer that did that? Was it because it was plugged into every payment system? Now, what's the biggest single source of cash in the economy on a daily basis? Anyone want to have a go at it? Supermarkets. Supermarkets have to clear their cash they have to clear their digital payments. It's too expensive to go through the banks, so they created their own clearing system. That clearing system clears the credits and debits between the Royal Bank of Scotland and Lloyds Bank without ever touching the London Bank clearing bank system, and it failed. The unusual thing that happened, also happened is that all the petrol stations in the country started ringing up. Thousands and thousands of them, or maybe tens of thousands, why? 
Why should the petrol stations begin to ring? The, why should the phones begin? Well, I wouldn't have got this either. But if you're a petrol station and, you're in, and, and you are out of town, you also receive a lot of cash. How do you get rid of it? You put it in your, in your cash dispenser. And people take it out. And the moment you've taken it out of your cash dispenser, the bank polls your cash dispenser, calculates how much money has been gone through it, and credits your bank account. And for all the independent petrol stations in the country, that's how they pay for their fuel. Without the petrol, no fuel. So the petrol stations started to close. Within 24 hours, we had to have a telephone helpline up, crediting, predicting what those petrol stations would have earned and trying to credit their accounts so they could buy fuel. There's one other set of computers that would bring your world to an end if you live in London. Any idea what it is? Absolutely spot on. Well done. Do you know why? Not just because you couldn't get to work. Because the supply chain for food is no longer than 24 hours long. And if you can't get a truck into London, you can't restock the supermarkets. That's the world of connectivity. So if you're going to attack the connectivity, you materially affect people's lives. So let's move on. Um, The problem with aggressors in the virtual world is you can't see them, you can't touch them, and they're not going to come storming over the white cliffs of Dover. So when you talk about an aggressor in the world of cyber, in the world of cyber we can visualize the cyber ghost. I imagine Ben knows exactly where, these, where most of these are located. Most governments know where they're located the ability to unwrap what are called proprietary data packets and, cal and work out where they come from is not that difficult. It's available technology. That was a pen. Um, so, to get off this subject, the conduits through which we do trade are now digital. They control shipping, satellites, almost every conceivable thing in our lives is controlled or managed via digital communications. If you break the digital communications, you break the backbone of society. I don't think that's that different to anything that's being said today. Even in Africa, the biggest growth in Africa in payment systems is not the banking system. Does anybody know who this one is? What this one is? I know you do. A mobile phone. Who would have thought of that? It was not designed for that. But the single biggest way of transferring exchange is to transfer credit from one mobile phone to another. The problem is, you see, we're quite bright. And when you set up a connectivity system, humans learn. You might hit them once and they'll stay where they are. You might hit them twice and they might stay where they are. You hit them a third time, they'll work it out and move. The trouble is that a lot of people move on the second strike because they see what's going to happen and they invent new ways of doing business before the people who've invented the technology have worked out it could ever do it. The simplest, simple example of that is SMS text. It was never designed as a communication system. It was a back channel for servicing um, the, the uh, telecoms hardware. No one ever thought it would go into the global phenomenon that it did. So, my question tonight is to what extent can the misuse of the internet 
bring sanctions in the same way as other forms of aggression. Now, there is a paper on this, so I'm not going to bore you through all the detail, but I'm going to take you through some of the steps. I'm going to, firstly, I want to explain exactly what this aggressor is that we're looking at. Where I'm going to disagree with Angela is it's not the user. The user is the victim. It's always the victim. The user is never the aggressor. But there are aggressors out there, and they are big, and they are well-organized, and the government, government knows where they are. In the Semantic 2013 report, which, uh, and I was asked, am I sponsoring Semantic? And no, it's no, they just write really good annual reports, and they're a really good source of information. The Semantic annual report cited six things. It said, cyber attacks will continue to be an outlet for tension where country countries are between countries are played out. Moreover, in addition to state-sponsored attacks, non-state-sponsored attacks, including attacks by national activists against them, they, those they perceive to be acting against their country's interests, will continue. There are over 1.2 billion packets of malware and data being transmitted by the internet every day. Sophisticated attacks and techniques will trickle down. And I want to please, bear, please hold this thought for a moment. Know-how used for industrial espionage or cyber warfare will be reverse engineered by criminal hackers for commercial gain. You see, the problem is, once humanity has learned how to do these things, it tends to spread and it tends to leak. And the Chinese hackers, who are very, very good at attacking major systems, such as the one that took down the entire East Coast power grid less than a year ago, that technology will get into the hands of less sophisticated hackers. Websites will become more dangerous. What we call now drive-by infections. A drive-by infection is not something that's targeted at your website, but it simply gets sucked in. Social media will become a major security. Uh, will become the major security battleground. Now, on this, I agree with Angela. The reason why so social media will become the battleground is because it's the least secure access point to major connectivity. And attacks against the cloud will increase. Increasingly vicious malware will emerge. So I'm going to make a prediction, and it's the one that worries me, is that the internet is the greatest possible tool for good, and it's the worst possible weapon for the totalitarian state. Because once you are connected, it is very difficult to become disconnected. So if we are starting to think of a new world where the conduit moves both ways, and I also agree with the hypothesis that the nodes, the point at which the individual connects to the internet, is the biggest single point of failure, but it's the, it's the biggest single point of control as well. So where does this take us? This is not Ben's world of the future. This is the world of now. What we're now seeing 
And then less than a week ago, and I, this was not available when I started writing this paper, is we're seeing the discussion groups starting to talk about the right to retaliate. This is when life starts to get scary. Last week, and I'm going to read this word for word, if I may. This was Washington. This is the Obama administration. And, and I promise this was not in my head at all when I wrote this paper. This, this came out whilst I was editing it. With President Obama preparing for his first meeting with China's new president, a commission led by two former senior officials in his administration will recommend a series of steps that could significantly raise the cost to China of theft of American industrial secrets. If milder measures failed, the commission said, the United Nations should consider giving companies the right to retaliate against cyber attackers with counter-strikes of their own. In the United States today, there is an active cyber warfare unit. It is not dormant. It is active. And it is taking offensive measures on a daily basis. The, uh, the, the uh, release went on. China is two-thirds of the intellectual property theft of the world. We're at the point where it's robbing us of innovation to bolster our own economy at a cost of millions of jobs. Now, even allowing for American hubris, there's a, there is a considerable amount of that that is true. If counter-attackers tax, and here is, here is my piece on where cyber warfare comes in, if counter-attacks against hackers were legal, there are many techniques that companies could employ that would cause severe damage to the capability of the Chinese or other groups committing computerized theft. But it added, many in the administration have opposed such ideas, fearing that, the, 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 fearing that they could live to a cycle of escalation between the United States and other nations that could easily spin out of control. The last time those words were used was at the Nuremberg Trials. So we move towards Armageddon. If the scale of, 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 of cyber attacks launched from rogue states and terrorists, territories where sovereign governments condone the attack, at what point does the victim state become entitled to launch a counteroffensive? In 2009, a group of experts from around the world got together in Tallinn, in, East, in Estonia. They took two years to complete their work. The, uh, you can buy, you can, nice, in, in the world of the internet, you can buy a copy of the Tallinn Manual on Amazon. <laughs> um, it's an interesting read. What they sought to do was to look at the, the United Nations Charter and to determine to what extent the UN Charter could be applied to cyberspace. And what caused particular focus is, what's, is Article 51. Article 51 is essentially the article which entitles a state to launch uh, war against another country. It's based on what is called the just, just as bellum, or the rights of war, again developed and evolved philosophically after the, after the two great wars. There are six elements to it. 
just cause, right intention, proper authority, last resort, probability of success, and, and proportionality. The Tallinn Committee, the Tallinn Group of Experts, considered this and considered specifically what constituted an armed attack. The, um, the group concluded that an armed attack did not necessarily mean a physical attack. The threat of attack, for example, the threat of a nuclear strike, was sufficient. And it concluded that a cyber attack on a sovereign state's critical infrastructure did justify an attack under Article 51. Under Article 2 of the UN Charter, nations are extolled to, rest to restraint. They're extolled to go through the United Nations before making counterattacks. The question, therefore, is what constitutes an armed attack for the purposes of satisfying Article 51? The wording explained in the, what's called the Nicaragua case, which was the Contras case in, in Nicaragua, which went to the International Court, was that it was necessary to distinguish the gravest forms of use of force from those, co those constituting an armed attack from the less grave forms. Every, every state has a duty to refrain from the threat or use of force to violate the existing international boundaries of another state. Now, I hope you see where this is going. The cyberspace invades boundaries, and the laws which we have, which regulate the conduct between states, are based on boundaries. Every state has a duty to refrain from acts of reprisal. Every state has a duty to refrain from forcible action. So the, the, so the Tallinn Committee thought about this and they tried to decide what constituted an armed attack for the purposes of cyberspace. Not surprisingly, they had some difficulty and they were reluctant to define it. They did actually have to, however, decide that there was one attack which had been undertaken in the past 10 years, which did justify and would meet the threshold of Article 51. Some of you may know it. It was called the Stuxnet attack. The Stuxnet was a virus which attacked the operating system or the firmware which was embedded in the Siemens hardware server. Particularly, Iran had imported these servers in breach of sanctions to run their um, nuclear program. Within 10 days of the Stuxnet virus hitting the internet, the entire Iranian nuclear program ground to a halt. Now, that virus has been widely, and I mean very widely, attributed to the CIA, who have not denied it. That's cyber warfare. Like five minutes is brilliant. I'm absolutely... Now, I'm delighted. <laughs> so where do we go from here? Un International Court, new UN protocol. I do like the... Um, 
right to defend, right to attack theories. Because when you start reading the literature, the Americans particularly like to talk about kinetic and non-kinetic attacks. And anybody like to hazard a guess what a kinetic attack is? Yeah, drop a bomb on it. Um, the problem with, the, with, with cyberspace is that when people get frustrated and you can see the level of frustration growing, you only have to read the blogs and the, um, uh, what I call the serious discussion groups to see the sheer level of frustration at the cost and the trouble which companies and, and infrastructure suppliers have to go to to realize that it's quite capable of getting into a cycle of reprisals. There is a very serious risk that simply cyberspace will go kinetic. So is war capable in cyberspace? No, perhaps not. But what is a real capability is that conventional war could result from cyber war. Thank you. For more information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.